Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Dungeon of Doom, the new Lions podcast here from your MLive.com beat writers. I'm Kyle Meinke. And I'm Ben Raven. And we're happy to happy to be here. This has been some time uh, in the making, eh, Ben? Absolutely. No, a very exciting thing that we've kind of been working on behind the scenes for a couple of months. And, you know, I know it's weird to launch a podcast for an 0 10 and 1 team, but here it's we gotta are. Be a first. It's got to be <laughs> a first. Got to be a first. In some history here at the, the Dungeon of Doom, 0, 10 and 1. Nothing screams more content, please, like 0, 10 and 1. Uh, <laughs> that's uh, the level of dedication you got here from Kyle and Ben. No, uh, jokes aside, I mean, you know, Ben, I mean, the NFL is king in this country. And, and um, you know, in this state, you know, the Lions are so big and there's so much fan interest, even when they're bad. And sometimes when they're bad, I feel like, you know, the interest is even greater. You know, I mean, people get fired up. There are Mondays where, I can't open my email because people are so upset and I have to see so much crazy, you know, and uh, it's really a unique thing. I think about this team given, you know, given its record of losing. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, a, I mean, that's why we're here. That's why we're launching this. It didn't matter what the record was. They could be 10, 0 and one, they could be 0 and 11 at this point. I mean, Lions fans never stop caring, but you know, I mean, they might turn it down a little bit until draft season, but they're still right there. And they're still there in your email inbox to let you know that like, they think the offensive line play was pretty weak for an 0-10-1 team in week 11 of the season. So it's like, we love y'all. And that's why we're here. We're here to give you more and more and more. <laughs> I had somebody email me uh, in the past couple of days asking if uh, anyone's uh, done any reporting on whether lot the lions were connected to organized crime because of their like record uh, against the spread or whatever it was but that's the kind of that dedication we get on our end from <laughs> from lions fans oh but shoot and always thing, interesting yeah. no, they always keep it interesting i'll, I'll give them that Absolutely. And one thing that we do need to touch on, uh, the Dungeon of Doom name. I want you to explain that one, Kyle. I mean, if people are already DMing me, you come up with that name, you wrestling fan, you? No, it's not wrestling. It's Lions related. Kyle, Dungeon of Doom, the meaning behind it. Yeah, well, it goes back to uh, our old friend, Jim Caldwell. Um, I think, you know, a lot of, you know, people who follow the Lions, I think maybe have heard of it at some point. It's a little bit of an insider's joke, but uh, uh, it goes back to Jim Caldwell. We had gone out to London, um, and I forget I forget if it was 2014 or 2015, um, probably 2015 because things were not going well, but they went out to London, um, and they came back, um, and, and Jim Caldwell, um, to a, a question from our friend uh, Bob Winowski from the Detroit News, uh, Wojo, what's up, Wojo, hey, shout Wojo. out. Um, Wojo had asked uh, Jim Caldwell something and Jim Caldwell had called the Detroit Lions media core, the Dungeon of Doom, which obviously has a certain ring to it. Uh, but he was just basically trying to say that we were overly negative. Uh, and my contention is something like that is always, if you want less negative coverage, be better. You know, we're just reflecting the reality of this team. Um, I mean, I think when you do this job the best, you're kind of throwing up that mirror, right? To like what's happening with the team and throwing up the mirror and beaming it back to people. That's if we're doing our job the right way, that's what it's going to be. And when you are terrible for 60 something years uninterrupted, I think the coverage is going to be more negative than positive. And um, anyway, that's uh, it was just kind of a comical little thing that became a running joke. And here we are all these years later uh, with the dungeon of doom. Yeah, absolutely. We'll just throw it out there. You know, it's hard to have a great white buffalo after one episode, but Jim Caldwell, you are our number one target to get on this. <laughs> just throwing it out there in the world early. That's our great white buffalo for sure. No yeah, question. I, think, I, I hope to get Jim on here at some point because it really isn't good fun. And I had a very good relationship with 
uh, with Jim. And uh, I have a lot of respect for the job that he did too. I know it didn't end where everyone wanted, but um, you know, given the long record of losing with this team, the fact that he was as good as he was for, you know, for three of the four years that he was here, including an 11 win season, which is the second best in team history. I, you know, he, he obviously did some things right. And um, so it's, it's, it's in good fun. The name of the podcast, we're not, it's, it's nothing otherwise. Before we get too much further down the rabbit hole on this, I do want to give a quick shout out to my buddy Andrew uh, Jaworski for the the beats for the podcast that we'll be using. Uh, just a local guy here in Detroit who made the track for us. We appreciate that, and for the the support that we have from our producers and, uh, and the people who created our um, the graphic here, we're very appreciative for getting this thing uh, off the ground. Absolutely, yeah. This is not just two people for sure. Much thanks to everybody, but yeah. We're talking from an 11-1 season. We're covering an 0-10-1 team with a 77.1% chance to land the number one overall pick in the draft with, what, five or six games left, Kyle? You've seen yeah. some dark times. How dark is it right now? It's about as dark as, I, as I've seen. Uh, I, I've probably seen greater toxicity because everyone expected the Lions to be bad this year. Uh, and, you know, Dan Campbell, for all the mistakes that he's made in game in, you know, this year with his decision making and so on, has also com- continued to command the locker room and has kept things together. So it's more functional, actually, than what I've seen in other years. But obviously, you know, going winless in 11 games is not exactly ideal either. Uh, and things are going sideways at this point. We're looking more and more like with the number one pick, which is, you know, is something. But um you know, this might be a good segue, Ben, for, for our interview here with Dan Miller uh, that we just recorded. Dan Miller is the voice of the Lions, play-by-play man on the radio. Uh, he's our first guest here on the Dungeon of Doom and has seen, as such, as someone who has called this team for 17 years now, the, the plays, he has seen he has seen uh, the worst of it over the years and has really unique insight into uh, the state of affairs. So I'm very happy to set up this uh, interview here we have with Dan Miller. Okay, we've got our first guest here, uh, Dan Miller, the uh, esteemed voice of the Lions. Um, welcome to the Dungeon of Doom, our first guest. Welcome. <laughs> the Dungeon of first, first <laughs> guest. How many people did you go through before you landed on me? <laughs> uh, we we actually went to you first, Dan. There, there's no one who I think understands the nuance of the Dungeon of Doom uh, better than the person who has called the play-by-play uh, for this team for an how many years? To, I don't know if it's an ode to Jim Caldwell or an ode to one of Kyle's weekends recently. <laughs> It's a, it's a double meaning there, Dan. It has <laughs> nuance. Um, no, it is an, it's an homage to, to Jim, to Jim Caldwell. And uh, we just thought it was pretty funny and, uh, you know, moniker or whatever. Those are the good old days, man. Like, I, I don't think any of us could have predicted back then that it would be this much worse, uh, you know, for so long. Yeah. And, and first, love that guy. Just <laughs> as, as fine a gentleman as you will ever find. Um, so it's a, it's a nice homage to Jim. Um, but you know, just going back to really that change, I thought the thought process by Bob Quinn at the time made sense. They, they were on the edge, but they weren't winning the big games. They had opportunities to win divisions or win playoff games. and They weren't doing that. So he's like, OK, I'm going to get the guy in here that's going to take the next step. So I thought the thought process was good. The execution clearly was not good to, you know, put it bluntly, lightly. Um, so. Man, it just, yeah, I agree. I, I felt like at that point, okay, you've got your guy, highly regarded, you're on the way. And they were. We just didn't know they were on the way to this. <laughs> 
Yeah, no, I, it, it's interesting to me that every time the Lions uh, do something noteworthy these days uh, on the losing end of things, you know, you, you see Jim Caldwell's name trending in Detroit. Mm-hmm. And I do think that there's this like revisionist history sometimes going on with that stuff. And I have a lot of, I have a lot of respect for, for Jim Caldwell. I think he did a lot of great things here by Lions standards, right? I mean, uh, he won more often than any other coach <laughs> for this organization. Um, but you know, the, it wasn't really going anywhere. And I, and I don't think, you know, the, because the, uh, you know, the have, things have not worked out. I don't think that that, 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 that means that they made the wrong decision to fire him. Like they made the wrong decision on which guy to replace him with. And that was the error, not necessarily firing Jim Caldwell. No. And I agree with that. And I do think that the, the revisionist history in many ways is tied to you know, Bob Quinn saying nine and seven is not good enough. Well, nine and seven feels really good compared to where this team has been. Nine and seven and contending for a playoff spot, nine and seven and, and going to the playoffs, whatever it is, feels really good. But the revisionist part is, is the fact that they were right there a couple of times and never could finish it, never could get that one win to take the division, never could, you know, finish a playoff game when they had a chance to do it. So, um, it's easy to go back to that and say those were the good old days. But I think at the time, everybody would have said good, but not good enough. And that's the problem. Yeah, I agree. I mean, Bob Quinn, that, that nine and seven is not good enough thing got hung around his, 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 his neck when things went so awry with Matt Patricia. But what he said is correct. Nine and seven is not yeah. good enough. If you're playing for a nine and seven, like, what are you even doing? You know? Right. Yeah. It's right around there with the, with the tease Tabor, uh, medallion yeah I've, i watched more video of t's Tabor than any other player but no and 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 look you're you're in a business you know guys I, i've been covering this team for 24 years i've been doing the play-by-play for 17 and i can't tell you how many times you're in the middle of something and it feels right you're in the middle of something and a decision is made and you think okay that makes sense i see where you're going here and then it just doesn't work out and then with hindsight, you look back on it and you're like, well, what the hell were they thinking? And, and you know, it's, I, I think that's part of sports that in the moment, something can feel good, but in, but in retrospect, it doesn't look good. And here's the other thing I'll say is everybody that stands up on that podium, whether it's a general manager or a head coach or whoever, A, knows football because they wouldn't be there if they didn't. And B, has some measure of charisma to sell it or they wouldn't be in the position that they're in. So a lot of times when they're selling something, you're buying it and you're trying to see what their vision is and you want to give them the benefit of the doubt that it might work, but it just hasn't. And, and, and that's been the problem. I mean, look, there've been upticks, but not the kind that anybody is looking to finish a season on. And I think that's what they're ultimately searching for is how do you finish that season, you know, deeper into January and ultimately February. So, so to all that point, Dan, um, your thoughts on, on Dan Campbell so far? I know we're, we're in the moment there right now, and, and the moment's yeah. not great. They're 10 and one You know, I see more criticism of him than I have at any point. Um, you know, the double timeout obviously was a huge mistake on Thanksgiving. Um, but I guess on a more macro level, just what are your thoughts so far on Dan and Dan Campbell and, and, and the job he's done here in year one? I think there's been moments within games where you can question things that he has done. And that's micro. I know. I think there's been, and I think that's with any coach. And I think that's where people start to think, Oh no, does this guy, you know, not know what he's doing or something like that. But, but here's what I'll say. I've looked at this year from the beginning as a year that is for Dan Campbell and Brad Holmes 
to look at this team, figure out what they've got, and try to figure out who's part of the solution, who's part of the problem, and then set their course for the future. They didn't go out when they came in here and spend a ton of money to try to win six games this year. And I think that was the appropriate thing to do. Look, I like Dan Campbell. I love the way this team reacts to Dan Campbell. I think right now there's some questionable things going on with the, with the leadership of the offense that he's going to have to sort out and how this thing ultimately plays out. But I, I, I love the guy, the motivator, the way that this team has played with, with the limited assets that they have. They haven't won, but they've played hard. And I think a lot of times the not winning has been a reflection of the, of the lack of talent more than it's been a reflection of coaching. And, you know, I'll be honest with you. And I'll say something that probably, you know, some people will, will strongly disagree with. I'm not worried about what the record is because I don't think it matters if you're 115 and one or zero 16 and one. It's not going to change what these guys need to do starting 10 minutes after that game ends on January 9th or whatever the date is. And that's fixed this roster. And look, the most important thing that happens between now and the end of the season is that Aleem McNeil gets better and Levi Onzerike gets better and Derek Barnes gets better and, and Panay continues to improve. And all these young guys that have to be part of the future get better. And the, the, the rocket fuel for the rebuild is the guys that are already here being a part of the solution. The less you have to replace, the better off you are. So to me... I'm much more, look, they want to win. They're playing their ass off to win. They're, they're doing everything they can. Sometimes it doesn't look very good, and sometimes the execution is poor, but they're trying to win. But my point is that the macro picture, as you put it a moment ago, is much more in tune with how these guys are playing on the field and what the young guys ultimately do. Yeah, yeah I do think in the drama of 0-10-1, uh, and the mounting frustration from fans over the start, and especially the way the last couple of losses have gone, gone down. I, I do think it's got lost a little bit that this was always supposed to be a rebuild. This was always supposed to be a really difficult first season. They took a really bad roster and then made it worse by trading Matthew Stafford and cutting a bunch of guys and uh, cutting payroll and preparing for what's going to happen in year two and year three when those extra first round picks arrive and you have a couple more cycles of free agency in the draft to assemble this roster. So I, you know, I understand that it's difficult to watch because we have to watch it too. Yeah. Um, but this was always kind of the expected outcome. And so I don't really hang the record on Dan Campbell necessarily. And I think the most optimistic thing, if you can take anything out of the season, is that even when things have gone as badly as possible in this league, he's commanded the locker room. He still has the respect of the players. They're still playing hard. This hasn't become the kind of toxic dumpster fire that you typically see with when teams are this bad. Um, and it kind of reminds me, Dan, of um, 2015 when the Lions started one in seven or whatever it was with Caldwell. Mm -hmm. And Caldwell continued to com command the locker room. The guys played hard. I mean, you just don't really see that as often in this league when the wheels come off. And Caldwell commanded so much of the locker room and so much respect. And his leadership was such that he was able to, you know, pull them out of that and had a couple of like decent years after that. And that's kind of where I see Dan Campbell at right now is he's continued to command this respect and got the guys playing hard, uh, even at a time when a lot of coaches don't. And I think that speaks a lot to his aptitude for this job, 
even though he's obviously made tactical mistakes along the way and, and, and things like yeah. the double timeout, uh, you know, the game management stuff that we've seen uh, throughout the last few weeks. And those are things he's going to have to learn from. And, and I, I think, that, yeah, I, and I think, Kyle, that's important. I think that's important to say because people will sit here and think, oh, you're just giving him a free pass because you think the players are playing hard. That's not the case. I think there's, there, there's different things you can look at. There's different boxes for this coach. There's what you just talked about. How's he commanding the room? And I think that's huge. And I think there's, what is he working with? And then I think there's, okay, there are some things that he has to clean up. Yeah, the double timeout, not being able to get your guys coming out of a timeout into the right position so that you have to burn that timeout so you don't give up a walk-in touchdown or a, a game-ending first down. Those things have to be cleaned up, and he's, he is absolutely responsible for that. So it's, it's not like we're saying, okay, all these mistakes that are being made, he gets a clean slate. That's, that's not the case. He's got things he's got to clean up as a coach, but I think there's, there's different ways to look at things, and I think if you throw – you know, one blanket over the whole thing, that's a mistake. Yeah. The good news is I think, you know, the things we're talking about, those are the game management stuff that can be learned to some extent. And I don't think you can learn leadership qualities, right? Like you got it or you don't. And the last guy here didn't, obviously he lost the locker room early and never had a chance after that. Dan Campbell's making mistakes and he has to learn from them. But the good news is he's got some of the stuff that you see in good NFL coaches. You can't really teach. I feel like. Yeah, and I think also, you know, I was talking to somebody about this the other day. Game management also sometimes is dependent upon what your talent is. The decisions that you make, you know, are based upon what you have to work with. Can you overcome a mistake? Can you take a risk right here because you know that you have the guys that will be able to come back and overcome that? They don't have that. And I think that's why he plays this thing so close to the best. I mean, look, their offense right now is just, it's half an offense. They can't throw the ball down the field and it's, it's hard to watch because, you know, it's you sit back on a Sunday and you watch the games as we all got the opportunity to do. And it's rare for us to be able to do that this past weekend. And you say, wow, these teams are slinging it around the yard, man. We just haven't seen that in so long. And it's just so strange because for how many years did we say this is half an offense because Matthew Stafford can throw the ball, but they can't run the ball. Now they finally can run the ball a little bit and would even be able to run it better if they could actually throw it, but they can't throw it. So I, I think sometimes, back to my original point and to what you were saying, the way that he manages a game, I think will also evolve over time, A, from experience, but B, from also having the ability to utilize different parts of the team when it's better. Right. Yep. I agree. Um, something Ben and I were talking about before having you on, you know, is, um, and we can bring Ben in this conversation as well, hey. but, but, uh, uh, Hey, Ben. Hey, how you doing, Dan? Hey, you guys are flowing. I'm not going to interrupt a good conversation. I'll, I'll find my spot. <laughs> ben and I were talking, Dan, about the unique spot you're in as the play-by-play man of having to call this stuff. And as you said, it's hard to watch. But also, you're, I mean, your, your checks are signed by the Fords. I mean, you got a certain message you got to put out there for the team, too. And you walk that line, that delicate line, so well. And I, I guess I'm just curious on your perspective of, of, you know, as the play-by-play man, you know, what it's like to cover, to, to watch, to uh, broadcast a, a season like this. Well, I think at its core, you remember this, number one, it's a job. And you have a job to do when you sit down there and you have to be a professional and you have to go up there and you have to tell the people what's happening. And that that's, that's where it starts. Secondly, on a more personal level, you realize I, I'm living a dream I had as a kid. 
I mean, to be, I'm one of 32 people in the world that gets to sit down and do what I get to do every Sunday, which is never lost on me. And, I, and it's an honor and it's a privilege. Um, look, I, I ride the emotional waves. I think a lot of times that, that fans ride now I have a job to do, but I want this team to win. I'm vested in this team. I love this organization. This organization has been amazing to me, but I will tell you honestly what's happening on Sunday. And I, I think anybody that has listened to our games will tell you that we are honest about what happens on Sunday. I'm surrounded by two guys that know what they're watching in Lomas and TJ. Um, so, you know, look, we're going to be fair, but we're going to be honest. We don't make it personal. But our job is to tell people exactly what's happening. And if it's not good, believe me, Lomas and TJ can look at it and tell you, because they've played it at the highest level and both of them have rings, that this is not the way it's supposed to be. So, look, I, I always look at these things like everything evolves. You know, it gets better, it gets worse. It hasn't gotten better to the point where we all want it to be yet. But I, I never feel like anything is permanent. I never feel like there's no curse. You're not doomed to lose. You're doomed by your, your decisions. And I'm of the mind right now that, look, I'm really excited to see what these guys can do as they move forward and really kick this thing into high gear. But, um, you know, I, I think there are certainly Sundays where you can hear my frustration, but I'm no different than anybody else. You know, I, I'm no different than anybody watching this game. I just get to tell you about it and you get to hear how I feel about it. But it's it's the greatest job in the world. I love it. I'm blessed to do what I do. Uh, you know, between Fox Two and 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 the Lions, and and I wouldn't want to be anywhere else on a Sunday. I'd prefer not to walk out after watching a 66 yard field goal. But there's no place else I'd rather be on a Sunday. And and we're fortunate that you feel that way and are in the job you are because uh, you do a, a damn fine job, Dan. And uh, you know where Appreciate I stand you. on that. But uh, you got a difficult job these days too. You know with the football the way that it is you just do such a good job of making the call intriguing and honest uh you know while also not taking digs at the people who signed the checks you know yeah no I, I appreciate it no i i again i just think it's I, i've always believed regardless of what i've done if you're honest and you're fair there's really not much anybody can say to you and again don't make it personal because there's it's, it's there's no reason to do that you're calling a football game that's happening in front of you call the game, tell people what's happening. And, you know, I've never, ever had anybody say anything to me about anything that we've said or, or anything like that. It's just been, you know, if, if somebody disagrees with something we've said, it's going to be based on what's happening on the field. Yeah. And something I kind of wanted to touch on that's going to be the base of this podcast is we're trying to connect with Lions fans. We're trying to explain to the world what makes Lions fans so special. And I called you when we did a podcast right before this promoting this, I called you, you're like a live IV. You're hooked up to the team as it happens, good or bad. I mean, I mean, I, I go back to that Thanksgiving game and I hear the roar of the crowd on that Reynolds pass. I hear the roar of the crowds on that Hawks, Hawkinson pass. That Ford field just feels like it, it needs a team to explode for. It feels like mm. it's so ready to explode for. So I guess in your words, your experience as Lions fans, what makes them so special? What sticks out the most from your interactions with them? I, I think, and I have something of a unique perspective here, having grown up in, in Washington, D.C., um, in Detroit, Maryland, Virginia, D.C. I, I think the thing that, that I have found that, that makes this different is just the deep roots that people have. Washington is a very transient place. People are in and out, you know, depending upon which political party's in or what's happening. And, um, you know, there's very, you don't 
run into a ton of people that live there their whole lives. You know, a lot of people seem to have come from somewhere else. I think what I found when I came to Detroit was the incredible depth of people's emotions that are tied to growing up rooting for the same team that their parents rooted for and their grandparents rooted for. And, and that, I think, aside from the fact that we have the riches that we have here with all four professional sports, two major colleges and other ones that dip their toes in the pool. Um, it, it's just, a, it's a phenomenal sports market. The fans are amazing. They're passionate. They've been there forever. And I think as far as the lions are concerned, look, this is, this to me is a baseball and football town. And these fans just need something they can sink their teeth into. And if you give them that, the ones that have kind of cooled a little bit will come right back. And there are those that have never left. And look, I understand there's a ton of frustration with this team. And I think that's where it's incumbent upon this organization, this new management group to get this thing right. And if you do, Ben, to your point, that building will explode. We've seen it before. You know, we, we've seen Monday nights against the Bears where they jump off sides, whatever it was, seven or eight times. And I, I, that's what it's capable of being. But you have to provide that to the fans for them to give that back to you. And I think that's what we're waiting for right now is to see what can they provide to get this fan base reengaged and going. Some of it's still there, but there's a whole sleeping mass out there in my mind that maybe dips in and out on Sundays, but just give them something, man. Give them a reason to believe. And this is the, that's the greatest place in the world to be on Sunday when it's on fire like that. I, I do think there's this misconception nationally, um, you know, that because the Lions are so bad and they've been so bad for so long that, you know, that fans aren't interested, you know, and I, I hear that a lot when I travel around, when I go to the combine, I spend a week with reporters from around the country or I go to the Super Bowl. And I think there's this expectation that, that people just don't give a shit about this team. And it's really the opposite. You know, I mean, it's mm -hmm. like like no matter how bad this team is, people are still engaged we see it with our stories on our Twitters. There's like Mondays where I can't even open my email because people are so on fire about what happened with the team. And I do think that's rare in professional sports. You know, you see a lot of apathy set in when teams are bad and you just don't see that with, with the Lions. And I, and I tell people around, this, around the country that if the Lions are ever good, when they do make a run to the NFC Championship or God forbid a Super Bowl, that the top is going to come off this city. And I just, I just think that's really a unique thing to see in, in professional sports. Well, I mean, what? We got love and anger are this close, right? And I, and I think that that's really, I think, where you find a lot of these, these people. I think that there, there's a love there, but there's also just, I think after a while, you can burn through your equity with fans. And I think people in the organization understand that they've done that. That's why you have a new head coach, and that's why you have a new general manager. And I, I think that's why they understand that if they get this thing right, they win the fans back, but they have to give them something. And I think, you know, anybody who thinks that fans don't care about the lions, they're just, as you said, they're, they're just, they're ill-informed. They're looking at it from too far away to understand what's really going on here. Um, I, I don't equate a less full Ford field to people not loving this team, I equate it to people that are frustrated and are saying, okay, 
just give me a reason. You know what? If this team comes back and goes 11 and five and that thing isn't, you know, rocking and rolling down at Ford Field, then you got a problem. But when this team gives its fans anything, they're there. And they've already endured a lot of disappointment, an incredible amount of disappointment. So I do think there's some of them that just say, okay, I'm over here. Call me when you get something right. And I think, you know, doesn't mean they don't care, but the engagement might not be there to the level that it will be, I think, when they get this thing going again. And I, I honestly believe that, that the organization understands that. And I just think it's, it's, it's a byproduct of where they've been and the disappointment, you know, not just of the last three years, but, but of longer than that. And Sheila Fordham said it the day that she took over the team and you guys were both on the call. She said, we can't hide from our past. Mm -hmm. They understand where they've been and they understand where they want to go. Now they're in the getting to go there part of it and they've got to get that right. We're already in uh, OT in our first uh, <laughs> our first uh, interview here. Uh, of Zoom. So we're off to a punctual start. Dan, we'll get you out of here with this one. I, I'm just curious. You've been on the call now. This is year 17, right? 17, on the mic. Yep. Yep. What, what what's your favorite call that you've made um, in those, those 17 years? I mean, there's kind of favorite games and there's favorite calls. I think I think probably favorite call was the Minnesota game in overtime, pack the bag, start the point. Yeah, I mean, it was, it was probably that. And I'll tell you one story about that. Um, a, I was going through a really tough time then with my voice. And I had been to a number of doctors trying to figure it out because I kept losing my voice. And, and uh, not that anybody needs to know, but it ended up being acid reflux. Um, but it was it, there was some pretty scary stuff going on when people are sticking stuff down your throat trying to figure out what's going on. And it, on the field goal call by Prater before that, my voice had cracked on the game-tying field goal. So I'm like punching that thing, thinking, God, don't crack, don't crack, don't crack. You know, it sounded like Peter Brady, if you guys are old enough to remember that. <laughs> yeah. But I, I – uh, I've seen the reruns, Dan. <laughs> yeah, no, I saw it at first run. No, but <laughs> but the, the cool thing about that call was my son called me that night. And he had gotten back to his paternity house and he had been doing something. And he said, dad, I got to tell you, he goes, sometimes I just don't even realize what you do. He said, but I got back and all my brothers were like high-fiving me about the mm -hmm. call that you had made. And that just, I mean, when your son calls you up and says that, that was just one of the coolest things in the world. So I think that call, I think the call, uh, the, the, the pick six against uh, San Diego to get him into the playoffs in 2011 and then I think there's games that, that stick out, 27-3 down in Dallas and winning that game. Uh, the Stafford touchdown scoring against Dallas down at the goal line on the sneak. And then, you know, being from D.C. and, and uh, having a lot of family that are, that are uh, Washington fans, that, that Stafford throw to Anquan Bolden for a game-winning touchdown mm -hmm. was probably one of my favorite games, too. Those, those are ones that stick out because it had looked – like Cousins had won it for Washington with the run before that, and then Stafford just right down the field. And that one, and then just getting all the texts from people in my family, like, you got us, you got us, and stuff like that. So I think those are the ones that stick out. But that uh, the one I hear about by far more than any other one is that Minnesota one. Yeah, and that's my favorite, too. It's I mean, that's a memorable call. And to me, it's so good in the moment. It fits the moment so perfectly that it feels like it was written. Like, like you'd write that in a movie script about a play, it fits so well. So I am, I'm, I'm curious if you had any kind of like idea 
that was going to be your call? Do you think about that kind of thing going into it? Or is it just not on, not on that one, on that one, I will tell you, it was so sudden that if you listen to the call, my first concern was that he had gotten the first down because you didn't want to kick a field goal because you figured they might go down and score a touchdown and win the game. And then when he kind of spins away from two guys, you're like, holy crap, this is, this is going to end right here. So that was organic. That was just kind of, I don't, I, you know, I had said something, I think, somewhat similar to that in a previous game when they had, I think, won in overtime on a field goal kick. Might have been like at Philadelphia or, or somewhere. Um, so I did something remotely similar to that. But in that moment, that was, that was pretty organic. The two times to your question that I've kind of written something down, uh, 0-16, yeah, I had people calling me for two weeks ahead of time saying, you got your call ready? You got your call ready? This is an NFL Films moment. So I did want to make sure that I had something somewhat, you know, uh, Jermaine to say when they fell to 0-16. So I had something written after the Green Bay game, and I said that then. And then the, the only other time that I really wrote anything down was when they beat Washington to snap the, I think it was 19-game losing streak. I was driving to the stadium that day, and I just felt like they were going to win. And I kind of was driving there, and I was thinking, they win the game, they, they and the losing streak, and the nightmare. And I just wrote down, I got to the stadium, and I wrote down those three words, mm. game, losing streak, nightmare, four <laughs> words. And that became game over, losing streak over, nightmare over. Yeah. Um, and that was so, I mean, I, I, I think sometimes you, you want to be ready, but you don't, I don't think, want to seem rehearsed. Because the moment doesn't come with a warning. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's one of those things. It doesn't, it does, you, you don't, you couldn't possibly predict that Golden Tate was going to do that, right. you know? So it's, it's, I, I think you just pray in those moments that you get it right because yeah. you don't know what it's going to be. I want to ask about one that there was no way to prepare for real quick. The, the Tucker kick this year. That's the one that honestly sticks with me just because I yeah. feel like that's where that line hit me. Like you are like a live IV to this fan base. Cause it's like, you perfectly encapsulated the feeling of an NFL record kick hitting the crossbar and making a one in a million bounce through. So like, just walk me through that. I hate to ask a yeah, question like that. I, but like... <laughs> yeah. And, and I would probably go back and say the other one that sticks out in my mind is, is the, um, is the, the Hail Mary. That's yeah. probably the one that was the biggest gut punch that I've ever felt up there. Um, and I just real real quick, I'll just say that play was in slow motion to me. And I just I, I can still see vividly just looking up and seeing that ball soaring through the air. And I'd never seen anything that high at Ford Field. It was just incredible. And then glancing to my left while the ball was still probably at the 25 yard line and seeing that their guys had inside position on our guys and thinking we're toast. I mean, literally, the ball was 25 yards away and I'm looking at it thinking we're toast. And then. After that, just really didn't know what to say. And I think I just screamed, oh, no. So, yeah, when I, when I think back on that call, it is just it, – it's it's the moment, obviously, and just the ridiculous nature of seeing a 66-yard field goal indoors, not at altitude, and it sails through to beat you. 
Dan Miller, I feel like this conversation could go on for hours. We uh, don't have that kind of time here or budget at the uh, <laughs> Dungeon of Doom. Um, but thank you for coming on, Dan, and lending your insights. Great stuff as always. I appreciate it, guys. I love talking to you guys. And that's one of the cool things about our job is we get to hang out with good people. So this is just an extension of that. So I appreciate you guys and appreciate you having me. And good luck with this. Amen. I got you, buddy. Thank you. Yep. Thank you, Dan. This has been Ben Raven and Kyle Mikey of MLive's Detroit Lions Group. Thank you for listening to the Dungeon of Doom, an MLive Detroit Lions podcast. Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Acast, Apple, Spotify, Google. Like I said, wherever you get them and listen to them, make sure to subscribe. Thanks again. Thanks again.